right, welcome to another episode of Reptile Fight Club. I am your host, Justin Julander, and with me is, well, lately not as always, but today as always is Mr. Chuck Poland. Welcome Hello. back. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's good you to be survived. back. You survived. They didn't kill you, huh? Barely. Oh, dude, it's not over <laughs> yet. So, yeah, it's... um. The, the inspectors are on the base. Uh, they okay. just went through and tore up the F-18 program yesterday, and they started into components. Uh, I guess they found some uncontrolled tech data right there on the floor. Oh, there goes, boy. Yep, there goes our central technical publications library program. So, okay. yeah, uh, good times. We are, we are still scratching and fetching, but, um, but all those hours hopefully paid off. We'll... we'll We'll see. I'm I'm uh, I'm over it. So yeah. <laughs> looking to get back. To, what happens will happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's. I mean, I've done the work, and now it's just time to see how it goes. So um, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you're back. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, a lot of ha- a lot happened since I I I, I feel like oh, yeah. you know you had you had uh, <laughs> you had like the episode of all episodes. I missed. That was crazy. Yeah, huh? yeah you missed a good, a good one. one. That was, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's good to have you back. I'm sure everybody's sick of hearing them from me, so yeah, it'll oh, be good to get the Chuck back in here. Come so. now, come now. <laughs> well, anything going on in your world in the reptile um, sphere? Yeah, no, just, um, just overrun by geckos yet? Yes, overrun <laughs> by geckos, and um, trying not to. Uh, strangle some coastal carpets that are giving me a hard time. They don't want to feed, and yeah, I, I tried I to start that. assist feeding them, and they they were just like resisting the assist feed, and it was just mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm over, it. like I'm over it. I'm not gonna like try to force this. Like I I just have been trying to throw live at them and and uh, you know see, but uh, about about like six of them are real stubborn out of the fifteen, so. I don't know, man. We'll just see. I'm, you know, in my old age, I feel like uh, I do, I'm going to do less of that, like, helping the stuff that makes life hard along and just see, uh, see who wants to, see who wants to carry on their genes and who doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. It's frustrating. I, I, I get that for sure. I just started with the carpets, so most of the jungles fed pretty well on their first try and just have i think one standout that's uh yeah out of the no i think that one actually took but so yeah things are going good with the jungles the inlands about half of them took on their first try so oh, that's yeah that's i'm good. off to a good start i that guess is a good start they, they like the new room maybe or something i don't know so this is the first first time i've had carpets in the new room so nice. and then i've got uh brettles just about ready to clutch the eggs are sinking in a bit so I'll have some hypo brettles here hatching, cool. so not nice. sure where I'm going to put them, but they're they're coming. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't expect her to go this year, but yeah, she she took so surprise. Yeah, yeah. they all all good eggs and all look like they've gone the distance. So we'll see what hatches out of them. You're going to have the problem of the mac and wookie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll figure something out. I've got a show this weekend, so hopefully I can move some nice. animals and free up in, some space. Where in Salt Lake or? Yeah, yeah. So nice. like, was that the what yeah. show is that? Reptilian Nation. So it's a uh, kind of a newer show, and they're coming in and like having their show earlier than the other show that's in Utah. And so I know the the other show is the Wasatch Reptile Expo, and they've been right. doing this for 
long time. So man, that's yeah. crazy. So it's like Battle of the Reptile show on Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yep. That's <laughs> so, nice. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. It's uh, so we'll see how it goes, but yeah, it should be fun. It's always good to see the local vendors and breeders yeah. and stuff around here. They're good people. So cool good stuff yeah nice but i i just looked in the incubator and there's a little baby uh nefarious wheeler eye a little banded knobtail gecko in there so that's, that's cool. cool yeah second that's one of those second one season. yeah 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 and hopefully a third one's on its heels uh the first clutch only one egg hatched and then this one they, they look good but i only see one out so hopefully the other yeah. one comes out soon but are you just yeah. holding on to those or um i don't know i'm kind of torn but yeah i, I uh I'll probably see how they do, but this one's got kind of a reduced pattern. It's uh, it's got five bands like a synctus, but it's a Wheeler eye, so kind of cool. weird. Yeah, uh, interesting. Well, aberrant stuff going on already here. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, everybody's uh, doing pretty well. Family's family's doing good. So nice. I, I liked I'm, Heidi's outro. That was yeah, yeah. She, that was she that was good. good. <laughs> if anybody. Yeah. Anybody didn't check out the uh, Chucklist and RFCville episode? Heidi, <laughs> Heidi did the diligent duty of the outro and did a great job. So, yeah. way to go, Heidi! Way to go! <laughs> yeah, she's a she's a great girl. Yeah, she's good. I might be a little biased, but yeah, v- v- versatile, 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 versatile. All right. Well, tonight we are joined by a special guest, uh, Lisa Farina. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, that right? that's right. Okay. Lisa Farina. All right. Well, thank you for being on the, the show tonight. Um, Lisa wrote in with a nice uh, um, idea for the podcast. So we said, hey, come on and come on and debate it. Come on and fight it. So she was uh, maybe a little reluctant, but we're happy she agreed to do that. So we'll have a good uh, good discussion tonight. So. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? Kind of say, tell us where you fit in herpetoculture and some stuff that's going on for you lately. Well, um, I got my first snake in 2016, so mm-hmm. I haven't been doing this for very long. I consider myself a novice. Okay. <laughs> I've I don't know. I'm jumping in the deep end, trying to fight someone like Justin Julander. <laughs> so, oh no, no. But, um, <laughs> I'm still learning, and um, I think that tonight I'm probably I look at it as less as a fight with you, and more as just like training with my coach. <laughs> oh god! Well, I mean, for somebody that's new, you've done some really amazing yeah. things so far. So yeah. I wouldn't, uh, yeah, discount your your point of view. Yeah, yeah. we we off, like the the fresh uh, look at things. Yeah, sometimes we get set in our ways and we have maybe uh, not the best ideas, so it's always good to look at it with fresh eyes. So, yeah. Yeah, I I, um, I've been thinking about the how in the hobby there's a real trend. Like when I first got my snake and I started listening to podcasts and um, doing research online, and it's there's been a real push to um, lower the temperatures, but mm-hmm. and. Um, not have as much of a varied temp like we aren't Mm -hmm. stressing our snakes we don't want to stress our snakes anymore and i just thought well what were we doing before and i don't i don't know what pushed like what pushed the hobby to do that um so that's i was like interested to hear about that so i thought maybe (laughs) you and chuck could fight about it and lo and behold (laughs) here i am (laughs) 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 Um, 
So um, what's going on with me is um, I just um, got eggs for the second year in a row with my um, from my southern um, white lip python. Um, oh, wow. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't um, gonna do it because I've seen some things go wrong when you breed your snake back to back. But I talked to a few people that I trust, and um, they just said, "Do what you did last year, and if she wants to go, she'll go." So I pretty mm. much just tried to do exactly what I did, and it worked. And um, nice. I actually, I, w- I was like, I'm, one of the things I'm excited about. Do, be, one of the reasons why I'm excited to be here and talking to you guys is because I noticed something kind of unusual is um, both times when she laid her eggs, she mm-hmm. didn't mound them and she just kind of laid them flat, mm-hmm. almost like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Yeah. They weren't mounded in a ball. And uh-huh. um, I was just curious if that could mean that maybe since I keep my um, enclosure a little warmer maybe than other people, she didn't feel like she needed to keep them in a tight mass to to keep them warmer. Or um, what? the one thing that I did notice is that the, I had problems with um, desiccation and the eggs got pretty flat. And I know that I've read that one of the reasons why snakes... Uh, brood their eggs is to keep humidity in and um but i don't know if it's just that i didn't offer her the the right um nest box or if it really meant something that she was just trying to keep them cooler she did Mm -hmm. she did wrap them but she wasn't Mm -hmm. able to totally beehive them she just wrapped her tail around them and kind of laid on top of them Okay. Yeah, I mean, there is some precedent for that with, uh, there was some research done on uh, water pythons up in the Northern Territory where they lay their eggs in uh, monitor burrows. And a lot of times the temperatures are are good enough just to incubate the eggs on their own. And so they'll just leave them and let the clutch finish out. I think they kind of start, you know, wrapped around the eggs. And if the temperatures are stable, then they take off and, and get an earlier start on, you know, regaining their fat reserves and things like that. So, yeah, it's possible that that, that could be due to temperature. So, yeah, that could be a, an interesting topic for the discussion today. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's awesome. So two, tw- two years in a row with the, the Southern Wide Lips, I'm sure you're making the Mac and Wookie a little jealous there. Mm-hmm. So. I was just going to say, that's... that's <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed your uh, interview on uh, Morelia Python's radio. So if, if you guys haven't uh, heard uh, Lisa's interview, you ought to check that out. Because I, I, I really liked your enthusiasm. And, you know, it, it's just fun. It's almost infectious, you know, where you, you can uh, just really pick up how excited you are and, and how f- much fun you're having with the with this whole thing. So that's awesome. Well, it worked out. She she's totally fine she's had two meals and she wants more and um all the eggs were good they were smaller they're smaller eggs though i noticed Mm -hmm. that i didn't weigh them but they're just you can just look at them and tell that they're smaller there's more of them but they're smaller um i did um when i was feeding her i did supplement it and put a little um calcium d3 on her um her rats just not mm-hmm. on all of them just 
a few of them I did um, because I was worried about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, successive uh, years of reproduction can take a little bit of a toll on it, especially some of the larger pythons. And I mean, even the smaller pythons, I know in the wild, the green, green tree pythons only go every maybe third or fourth year, but you know, in captivity, we can give them kind of almost unlimited (laughs) resources. They, they probably eat a lot more in captivity than they do in the wild, but yeah. So how, how often do you, uh, what do you do like, uh, food cycling or temperature cycling? What do you do for your, that's what I did. I, I did um, total food cycling, nothing to do with the temperatures. Um, mm-hmm. She Both times she went in the middle of summer. So mm-hmm. my room gets really warm in the summer. Um, every day the ambience get up into the upper 80s and then they drop back down into the upper 70s at night. And then the winter time, it's it's similar but lower like the mid 80s to the mid 70s but both times she went in the middle of summer in the middle of the heat wave um she they were when they were um breeding they were mostly on the cool side of the enclosure the whole time Mm -hmm. and um oh that's the other cool thing about doing it back to back the first year you're totally like second guessing yourself telling yourself you're just imagining you're like i just i'm just seeing what i want to see i'm projecting what i want and then so the next year you can be like okay this is exact she's doing the same thing she did and you feel confident so Mm -hmm. you can see the different behaviors i i um keith had asked me to check to see if i saw any um blood blood scenting like he he noticed some blood marking from the female of the bullens i didn't notice anything like that um i i just started feeding in the spring after having a a long fast through the winter and um after by mid-april i started pairing and and at first they weren't into each other at all i would come in the morning and that the enclosure would just be covered in urates like they were wrestling and smearing Mm -hmm. urates everywhere Uh and um, the male would be totally pristine but pearl might the female she would be covered in urates too so Uh. i think maybe he was just chasing her around peeing on her or something i don't know but i was like wiping down the walls (laughs) that that sounds fun (laughs) yeah it was it was fun it was exciting um, then probably about a few like a week and a half of that they started breeding and they just kept breeding the whole time all, mm. almost almost all the way until she ovulated and um, I did notice something different this time the male was guarding her he's a, mm-hmm. he's a really placid snake usually he doesn't strike or he does hiss but he doesn't strike or anything um, yeah but he was like laying on top of her and anytime I would try to get into the cage, he would strike out at me. Um, Mm. I don't know if they were bluff strikes, but it was unusual. It was new behavior. So it was pretty neat because it was obvious that he was guarding her. And um, yeah, since they aren't known to um, do male combat, I I wonder if that's what they do instead is just get with the female and then guard her rather than, Mm. you know, this is the male that like stays with her until she ovulates. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so do the, the males typically stay smaller than the females in this species? Um, Daniel Natouche says he never noticed anything like that in mm-hmm. the, um, white lip pythons. They're very similar in size. 
Okay. But no scars and things like that on the males from obvious combat bouts or anything like that? Hmm. Um, I, I don't think so because everything I've read has been that they aren't known for male combat. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, you're uh, reading the shine book right now, aren't you? The, Oh yes. I've enjoyed <laughs> yeah. it so much. Isn't I actually was, book? Yeah. I was a little, I was a little frustrated because I was like, Oh, I need to do some research on these temperatures. And I was like, I really just want to read that other book. <laughs> Yeah, it, it gets you. It kind of sucks you in and gets you wanting to read it all the time. Yeah, I'm about. Yeah. Well, I'm a little further than halfway. So I, I had. Uh, well, I didn't have to, but I took my two youngest daughters school shopping uh, last weekend, and so while they were trying on clothes and looking for clothes, I was reading the book and sitting around in the in the clothes shop. So yeah, I got got a little <laughs> bit more reading done this week. Uh, You're like, that, I'm but. gonna try this shirt on. I need that. Use that booth over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been in there for an hour, sir. Come out. <laughs> Uh, yep. Yeah, it's a it's a fun one. I I'd uh, recommend that to anybody that's uh, interested in science of snakes and and that kind of thing. But he just tells some great stories and kind of puts his learning process in there over the years. So it's really a entertaining read for sure. So yeah, yeah he seems yeah, like got a really a, humble guy too. Yeah, yeah. He he admits his uh, failures and successes, uh, you know, in the same same token. So it's uh, yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to finish it out, but there's some cool, uh, ties in there. So he, he, uh, did his postdoc in Utah down in like Salt Lake area. So oh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, oh, that's I totally really cool. About you. Yeah. When I yeah. did that part, I was like, Oh, I bet Justin is getting a kick out of this. He's, yeah. he's talk, not only talking about that and he's talking about St. George and I've heard you bring up St. George mm-hmm. more than it a few times yeah it's a it's a great spot and and i'm pretty sure i know what spot he's talking about when he talks about looking for gila monsters and stuff so yeah cool stuff and then uh the the guy that kind of got him into the or you know helped him get in at the postdoc in utah was uh dr legler and he was uh, a guy that i'd met in high school so i was really excited oh, to hear that's that too. Really cool. yeah really cool guy had some amazing stories about uh looking for turtles and stuff in australia so just had oh, me wow. enthralled you know i'm like this is what i want to do so but i failed him i i whipped i wimped out and went into virology instead of herpetology so <laughs> now you're reading about what you could have been in the men's dressing room while you're Exactly. Daughters are school shopping. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. His. Have you gotten to the part where he gets stuck on the cliff, where he's like, no, sliding I, off? I, I'm pretty <laughs> much right at the part when he's gonna just start talking about. Oh, oh no, I did read that part, and he was yeah, in the yeah. really bad accident with his girlfriend. That one. No, it was he was he was flipping rocks on on this kind of slippery slope, and he got too close to the edge, and he started to slide off the edge, and he kind of grabbed on, and his belt buckle stopped him from sliding, and he was like, you know, there was a cliff below him, like a, he says no. it felt like a hundred feet, but it was probably more like 
50 feet, but still, you know, still. 50 or 100, you're going to get hurt. Yeah. So he's like grabbing on and clawing to the rock and trying to get himself up and, and uh, yelling to the people that were with him to come help him. And I think they just kind of laughed at him. But I, he eventually got back up and, and uh, kept flipping rocks. But he said he found a lot of good snakes that day, so <laughs> maybe it was worth it. But, yeah, he came close to having a bad accident that way, too. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Great book, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Well, um, let's see, we're, we're going to talk about temperatures today. So, uh, um, as, as Lisa mentioned, she's been kind of thinking about that and, and different, uh, temperature re- regimes that are, uh, used in herpetoculture. So, um, we're going to kind of talk about the, I guess, pros and cons or benefits and, and drawbacks of having kind of a, uh, steady state you know like higher temp just kind of not really varying your temps much and then a more varied or uh i guess maybe natural uh, ups and downs and things like that so um yeah let's uh let's get into it so first off we'll have uh chuck and myself flip to see who gets to debate you so chuck you want to give it a call that's tails it is tails <laughs> you got it so uh you want to debate Lisa? Or would I'll, you like I, me to? I will let you. I will let you do it. You'll let me. Oh, I yeah. told you, man. The people are sick of hearing from me, but that's I'll, not I'll true. go for it. That's not true. All right. I'm, then, tech, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back, but I'm still going to have a free ride. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. You'll moderate for us. That's right. All right, Lisa. Go ahead and call it and see what uh, you can pick your side of you. All right, you got it. I'm, I'm a double loser today. <laughs> Two <so>. time loser. <laughs> uh, hang my head in shame. <laughs> All right, well, what side would you like to defend? I will defend a varied thermal temperature regimen with highs and lows. Okay. With, you know, more extreme highs and lows. Okay, and, sounds good. Um, and we... Mm-hmm. I'll just go ahead and go, <laughs> I guess. Okay. I, All right. Oh, she knows the deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. I she's like, like it. I'll just start. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. She's coming in, coming in prepared. So that's good. <laughs> well, um, kind of like how you insinuated earlier, you called it a more natural regime. So, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of the angle I'm going to take is, um, even though it's probably harder and more of an expert like level um, way to go, it is um, probably more natural because snakes in the wild aren't always just going to find the most perfect temperature that they want to be. Sometimes they're going to get a little hotter or a little cooler. And, um, And sometimes it actually might be good for them to get a little hotter or cooler than that steady 84, 82. Um, Mm. There might be things that are beneficial. And we're just mainly talking about pythons, right? Sure. Yeah, that that works. Um, We we all like pythons, so yeah, we can kind of center around pythons. So I was thinking about, because I read your Green Tree Python book. And um, you strongly recommend a more moderate temperature regime in there for them because um, there's a lot of overheating, dehydration problems. And um, 
what I was thinking about is the baby pythons the when they they hatch out the um, they haven't found a lot of um, nests in the wild but when they do they're usually on the edge of the um, forest where the sun sun more sun comes in so that that way the mother can thermoregulate keep the eggs warm and then when the babies hatch that's where they stay because they feed mostly on skinks. So I was yeah. thinking maybe the baby pythons s- sitting in the dappled sun, they're probably getting a lot warmer than the adults would. They, mm-hmm. they might get warmer and they'll get warm faster also and then cool off faster. Yeah. Um, so maybe we were just keeping the little baby um, green tree pythons too cold so they aren't getting like stimulated in the morning to feed. Until it hunt, so um, that's what I was thinking. Anyways, I don't know okay. if it's yeah, much no, of an that's argument. A good, <laughs> no, that's a good start. I, you know, I agree that uh, you know giving giving uh, animals access to you know a variety of temperatures. So you know, of course, I I like your side as well. But <laughs> I'm here to defend the you know kind of that um, steady Toe the state line. <laughs> exactly. I can't, I can't be agreeing with you. No. I'm just kidding. We, as as anybody who's listened to this has figured out, it's it's more reptile kumbaya than reptile fight club. So, <laughs> but uh, we won't we won't tell them. We like to keep that hard, you know. Well, I want going. you to bring it because I, I, <laughs> all right, I, I really want to um, know why everyone's so against these um, high temperatures when yeah. I've seen a- anecdotal evidence that maybe they like it and they actually yeah. do it, do seek it. Well, and and I think um, that's kind of where you know I, I uh, in reading the Shine book he was talking about, and, and this was you know not not necessarily pythons, but I think I know that some pythons uh, utilize this strategy, but they'll go under um, rocks, right? They kind of shelter under rock, so rock on rock, and they'll be underneath the rock, and um, that'll give them kind of uh, uh, almost a perfect ideal place where they can hit the temperatures they need to hit right so it'll get really hot on top of the rock so if they need more heat they just press their body up on up you know to the to the rock and when it gets too warm they kind of hunker down and stay by the cool bedrock that doesn't heat up as quickly so this thin rock above them can kind of um let them get to that uh steady state temperature that they need to do the job they need to do now i'm I'm not arguing that you know they they don't need cold sometimes and heat other times but i think for the most part most of their act and this is kind of you know along the thinking lines of terry phillip maybe but like um where most of their duties can be done at kind of a stable 82 degrees you know they can do all the things they need to do and so that's kind of the median i guess you'd say so yeah they can use higher temperatures and they can use lower temperatures but that steady state kind of works for them and then if uh if you saw um eric and owen's uh, show last night um i got watch it on my ride home on the bus last night but uh they talked about uh uh Timorensis, Maleo Python Timorensis, the lesser, lesser Sudanese or Sudan Python, as, as uh, they said a couple times, but the lesser Sunda Python, <laughs> Sunda, <laughs> um, which uh, you know also called the Timor Python, but they don't occur on the island of Timor, so it's kind of a misnomer. But um, they they showed you know temperature graphs and similar with the green tree pythons. Like when I was in the forests in the Iron Range, like 
it was not hot. It was, you know, a, a nice, uh, even kind of 75, 80 degrees. It was pretty cool. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I looked at lots of different temperature graphs and a lot of those, especially tropical pythons, they, especially if they are living in forests or whatever, they only get about like, you know, 75 to 80 degrees. They stay in that kind of five degree increment. So, I think especially for for pythons that come from those areas, that stable temperature is probably what they're evolved to to be kept at, you know. So uh, and and um, yeah, I guess I could counter with that. So you know, I think a lot of them are, are designed to be in that kind of sweet spot of seventy five to eighty two or something like that, and, and, and mostly kind of hang out at eighty. I don't so. think that that there that there's any argument that 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 both those those kind of steady climate equatorial pythons and then the more you know southern ranging which experience higher or lower temperatures don't experience fluctuations in temperatures. You're just talking sure. about a, a spread that's much much different. You know stuff yeah. that's yeah. Le- less you know more. More towards the hemispheres experiences a much greater swing than things that mm-hmm. tend to stay more equatorial maybe get less or more swing, stable right yeah and and those for those species that are more equatorial the the temperatures become less of a, a powerful uh, you know s- stimulant for things like reproduction or or uh, feeding cycles and things then it becomes more about rainfall you know moisture mm-hmm. and things like that so um, at least for those things that are kind of equatorial, it's it's not as big of a deal, you know, to keep them at kind of that steady state. Yeah. I um, I've heard that the green tree pythons, when they're uh, they're harder to find in the dry season, um, people will say, oh, they're rare because they go up there in the dry season when um, it's easier to get up there, and um, it's mm-hmm. because they're all hiding up in the top tops of the trees where it might be a little hotter up there but yeah what I was what I think is that uh, like 82 84 is the like homeostasis is that the homeostasis but during the day their temperatures could elevate and drop down and then but 84 would still be their median temperature or 88 Mm -hmm. Um, because I've noticed that um I had uh, I I've been keeping my green tree pythons in my bathroom just with ambient temperature, and mm-hmm. pretty much keeping them in that low eighty um, range. And um, I had so I have some wild cuts that I got from Dan Mullary, and um, yeah. they'll be eating just fine. And then um, they'll just stop eating. And um, one of the, these are adults. They I got them when they're adults mm-hmm. and their adults so um what i did um after them not eating for about a month and a half i took him and put him in my snake room which is a lot warmer and put him up Mm -hmm. on top of one of the um enclosures and let him sit in there for about a week and then offered him a rat and he ate it so Mm -hmm. i mean this is anecdotal but um it i just so he ate the rat and then i just moved him back into the bathroom and he was fine, but then he did it again, and I just did the same thing, and it happened again. So I don't know what's going on there. And then there's also so 
just recently I moved all of them into my snake room. So now they're feeling like the hot summers and the cooler winters. So we're going to see what's happening because I'm trying to breed one. I got a green tree python from Lucas and she looked like she was going to go and then um, she just didn't go at all. And I was kind of thinking maybe she didn't go because she didn't feel like she had enough heat available to her to um, keep the eggs warm enough in that room and we'll see what happens Um, right now she's looking pretty big so my fingers are crossed but I'm not holding my breath Um, so there's that and then um, so three of the enclosures that I have set up for them have um, lights with plants and um, because of the lights I, I don't have them the lights come on for very long because they get the enclosures really, really warm. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the snakes with the lights, when I first put him in there for the first two weeks, he kept perching right under the light and I would temp him and he would be 92 degrees. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I did was I moved. So the plant was kind of next to the light and I thought maybe he was interested in the plant. And so I moved the plant over and now he's staying next to the plant. So I think he wanted the plant more than the heat of the light, but the 92 okay. degrees wasn't bothering him. It was bothering me more than it was bothering him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if you guys um, listen to the Clubrids and Clubroid um, podcast, but they had a guest on there, Jennifer Joseph. She's has a lot of experience um, breeding Pituophis, and um, mm-hmm. she... Um, has a bunch of um, import hog um, giant hognose or the hognose snakes from Madagascar and mm-hmm. she was um, dealing with um, a parasite that they had um, yeah. an anamoeba do you know what that is? Ooh. I'm sure you know what that is Justin because yeah, they're you not, know they're about not stuff fun. like that <laughs> yeah but um, she was talking about doing research on the that um, particular parasite, and they found out that they don't do as well with um, low, like low temperatures, like under fifty, or higher temperatures over ninety, and um, it wouldn't it wouldn't kill that it wouldn't kill it, but it would definitely stifle it make it so that the snake, maybe its immune system and the medicine can do its job. Mm. Um, so when they cooled it that winter, she said it really helped the snakes. So I wonder if um, mm. the same token could be said about pythons that um, do things like, like we're always talking about microclimates mm-hmm. and um, that, oh, snakes even though that air temperature says 88 degrees, it doesn't mean the snake is getting 88 degrees. And I would argue that some of those microclimates, those snakes are seeking out actually might be higher than 88 degrees because they talk about finding snakes inside compost piles. And Mm -hmm. if it's the same thing that I'm thinking of, that's in my garden, compost piles get extremely hot and so do garbage piles. And so do, um, raft addicts with raft snakes that live up in their rafters um Mm -hmm. i saw a video of a guy that was a snake catcher in australia and he went up in these people's attic and they had snake sheds and snake poop all over this attic 
So the snakes yeah. must have been living in that attic. And I don't know how hot they were getting in there, but it must have been a lot hotter yeah. than the air temperature. Now they say like in, in every third house in Darwin, there's a Darwin carpet python up in there. So yeah, they, lucky, they commonly lucky use dogs. attics. And, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I, and I, I agree, you know, I think, uh, snakes, when they need to do different jobs, they, they probably need to select or they need to select different temperatures. Now, um, I, I imagine it's probably more dramatic with, uh, with, you know, temperate species and, and, um, you know, they're, they tend to be a little tougher because they can handle a, a much wider range of temperatures and, and they're used to kind of those fluctuations in temperature. So, but, but I think overall, like a lot of their behavior is to try to get them to a temperature that they need. So they'll actively thermoregulate to reach that desired temperature. Uh, you know, sometimes it's higher for things like feeding, you know, re- or digestion or reproduction. They need to increase their temperatures if they've got eggs or if they've got a meal um whereas other times they might need lower temperatures and so they'll actively you know kind of get their target temperature and sit at that temperature for for the time they need so um when they're sick you know they might elevate their temperature or or perhaps lower it you know it's hard to say so you know i've I've always kind of been a proponent of giving them you know higher and lower than they need so then they can kind of choose where they go um but you know, to to some degree, they're they're uh, in, you know, especially in the wild, they're actively moving to different places so they can maintain that kind of constant mm-hmm. temperature, if that makes sense. So even though the, the the area around them is fluctuating wildly, they're seeking a place where they can hit the the preferred body temperature. So with diamond pythons, you know, they showed they come out in the morning and bask on the rocks where it gets hot fast and they're darker so they probably heat up pretty quickly and then as they hit that preferred body temperature they go into kind of the dappled sunlight to maintain that temperature without overheating or underheating and then at night they'll cool you know they'll coil up so they can retain you know that have a have a smaller surface area so they can retain that heat or if they're too hot they can stretch out and move around and and dissipate the heat so but but i guess overall they're trying to hit that kind of level constant preferred body temperature so so so. what you're basically saying is that that even though the environment may be peaks and valleys of temperature and 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 things that aren't stable if you would look at what they're doing they're trying to you know kind of linear graph that 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 peak in that valley to try to stay uh it within a a much tighter range of of thermal Exactly. Um, and then they have, yeah, they have done studies on that where they've tracked the temperature of the snake and compared it with the environment, you know, even with reproductive females, like we, that's how we discovered what, what they're doing when they're shivering on their eggs, you know, they're mm-hmm. raising that body temperature. So, you know, they're kind of facultative endotherms at that time when they're using their body's energy to generate heat and to keep those eggs warm when they might dip down a little too cold. So, um, you know, but those are only seen in kind of the more temperate animals that experience those wider fluctuations. So they have to do things to stay in that sweet spot. Facultative that, yeah. endotherms. <laughs> I I think that's what you call it when they good, when dude. they shiver. To is that is no, that a big enough word? That's a good word. Yeah, that was well done. Well, well done. That was a big word for the day. I, I guess even though they 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 have those yeah wild fluctuations, they try to maintain kind of that 
uh, mm-hmm. homeostasis or that flat line. Uh, try to but I mean, uh, at, at the same to time, like, average oh, out. sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 I mean, to, you know, to to your point, like I, you know, uh, my coastals really didn't do a whole lot indoors when. Um, my temperatures are fairly stable and the minute I put them outside and they really hit that real cool, you know, that cool winter Mm -hmm. and that warm summer, boom, they just great looking clutch, big clutch of eggs, like just, just like that. So, I mean, clearly I think, you know, that I think there's that those extreme swings are something the snake needs to manage. Maybe it gives them some benefit on the on the margins being able to heat up quicker or or to cool down when they need to but it's definitely unarguably a signal for them and mm-hmm. and their body gets very clear signals from those like very very obvious differences in te- in temperature seasonally to me to me anyway where they sure. say ah I know exactly where I am as you know the sun or as the as the as we're changing you know the solar position throughout the year got it got it mm-hmm. I know where I'm at you know yeah. what I mean? are, are those like you're saying Justin those temperate spe- species because they have such high valleys and um I mean low valleys and high peaks what after they've been down yeah. in that valley and it starts to warm up their body says go now because they don't have mm-hmm. the whole season to wait to lay their eggs so that yeah. they'll be um, survive. Because if they lay them too late, the, it, maybe the temperatures will drop too much for them to be able to um, yeah. keep them warm enough. So, yeah. And, that, and yeah. I think that's why a lot of those species, you know, the more temperate species, uh, tend, you tend to have a higher incidence of, of you know, live birth versus egg laying because they, it's, it's, the female can control it better if she can move and shuttle and go to different areas to warm up more. Um, so, so, you know, that's kind of how those kind of things evolve and, and, uh, develop because, uh, it just makes more sense to be able to retain the eggs and move around with the offspring in the female, uh, to keep them at that desired range. But I mean, obviously, you know, they, they, they need different temperatures at different times and, you know, that's one of the benefits of ectothermy is that you don't burn a lot of energy when you maintain your body at a lower temperature. I mean, if we drop three or four degrees or raise three or four degrees, we're in serious trouble. You know, you got, you got a fever of, you know, four or five degrees higher than your normal body temperature and you're headed to the hospital, you know? So with them, they can fluctuate their body temperatures quite a bit. So obviously, you know, you've got a very strong argument uh, in that regard uh, for, for, having that access to a, a wide variety of temperatures and i'm not suggesting that they you know necessarily need that 80 degrees all year round but you know when they do need 80 degrees they'll they'll do the things to get them to 80 degrees either go to shade or go to sun you know to move up and down to where they yeah. hit that sweet spot yeah or loosen their coil when they're um, yeah just mm-hmm. With yeah the eggs yeah. yeah, or or even just when they're trying to conserve, like if they're hiding out in the shade after warming up, but then the day is just too hot, can't they? Mm-hmm. Don't doesn't a tightly coiled snake preserve preserve their heat a lot longer than a sprawled out snake? 
So that's how you yeah. know when you yeah. go into your reptile room and all your snakes are just like sprawled out. It's like when you yeah. see the crows on a really hot day and they're like uh-huh. standing around with their wings open, they're trying yep. to cool off. <laughs> or or they I would seek say, the you know water or something to kind of you know yeah. really cool down. <laughs> then you know it's really hot out. <laughs> um, one argument that I did have for the um, for more of a steady thermal. Um, was that um, if you're a snake breeder and you're going to sell a snake to a new keeper, it's a lot easier to tell them a really narrow regime that you know that the snake will survive in, and it's easier for them to understand and make get it done rather than telling them, well, at this time of the year, you need to let it drop down this low, and then yep. because, you know, that, that's just too much to tell a new keeper. <laughs> And, yeah, it, and that, that's what I that's what I did with my green tree pythons. Um, Harlan huh. Wall, I bought a snake from him, and he told me what to do, and I did exactly what he said, and it worked. I had yeah. great success. I haven't lost one, so nice. Um, yeah, he's he's a good to person to, to listen to. Level. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> yeah, say he taught yeah. me yeah. a lot. Probably not steering you wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he taught yeah. me a lot. I actually I sent him. Uh, he told me what to do, and then I sent him a picture of. I said, "Okay, I did it," and I sent a picture, and he's all, "Oh my god, you did exactly what I told you!" Like no one ever does that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and you know, I mean, it, it it might might vary from place to place. You know, if you're doing what somebody's doing say in florida and you're you know out in the desert like me in utah the high deserts where it gets really cold and really hot and it, and it then the humidity is about you know 10 to 20 percent versus florida where it's very warm and very humid you know you might have to alter those uh you know re- recommendations and i think um you know when when terry phillip uh, was on morelia python radio um you know i i think where where his situation is where he's working with a wide variety of species from a varied um climates and and you know places on earth where they're coming from so they have a wide variety of of needs so he's trying to shoot you know for the least common denominator trying to keep as many species as possible at the same kind of thermal regimen that will they can all benefit from you know and, maybe not and necessarily again it's, again, it's, a, it's optimal, about the goal right it's yeah about the exactly goal, right? he, and, his goal is to keep the most diverse <laughs> you yeah. know collection of reptiles happy and that's very difficult you know when you're trying to keep a lot of things in in kind of a limited uh um you know thermal or or regulated area so you know, and, um, and i think i think I think it's it's really it's good because you really can talk about both sides of this argument, yeah. kind of under the Terry Phillip umbrella, and 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 and, and the idea of a varied, you know, um, varied thermal regime. Um, as you know, snakes have a, a preferred body temperature, as kind of Justin was alluding to, that they'll use those peaks and valleys to kind of stay within that temperature, and and that's a safe place for you to put that snake and keep it there. And for new keepers, it's nice and safe, but mm-hmm. maybe not the most effective way to breed a snake, or if you want to, you know, reproduce.
produce snakes, you know, that then you have to kind of look at all those other factors that go into them making behavioral decisions. And clearly, you know, just and, and, and you know, I'm not to say that you can't do that. I, I think I had pretty good success with uh, that flat temp steady state with the Tracier. So, you mm-hmm. know, again, yeah. it's it's the situation that you're talking about. It yeah. really yeah. is situational. And I think, I mean, especially for like if you're trying to breed animals and, and, you know, like if you're a commercial breeder, a lot of them tend to specialize in one or two species that have very similar requirements and then they Mm -hmm. they kind of balance everything around that. So if you're a colubrid keeper, you keep a lot, you know, North American colubrids, you're going to have the, you know, that very cold winter, you're going to stick them all in a, in a cold room for, you know, a few months and then warm them up and, and do the whole thing. But if you, yeah. if you're a ball python breeder, you're probably have a pretty steady, you know, fairly high, uh, temperature compared to what you might use for other python species that are more temperate but you know i i was really uh interested to see uh dave kaufman's uh movie on you know that he filmed yeah. in africa about ball pythons i thought that was really interesting and i i do like his uh series of of showing animals in the wild and kind of measuring temperatures where they're at and in their burrows and looking at humidity and things and i mean those those uh ball pythons on eggs in burrows that it was pretty warm in there you know yeah. so and very humid so and look at you know, they're, look they're at, seeking those areas look at owen now he 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 can breed colubrids like a maniac but he can't breed a carpet to save his life anymore. <laughs> more right like so, his, his the yeah. rhythm of the room his yeah. rhythm of the it's, room it's, is, is he, around colubrids now yeah, he he, sh- he switched up his mojo <laughs> although he did get his white lip eggs this year that's, so that's see? yeah he, well. he changed it up so maybe the white lips are more like a colubrid in there their needs i don't know <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh <laughs> definitely uh a little differences in um you know where where the animals come from uh i i think i i kind of like to specialize in in australian animals that kind of have very similar requirements you know there's a little bit of variation there but Mm -hmm. for the most part they're all pretty tough and have a fairly varied uh requirements so what about um when you're incubating your eggs because Uh when i got the white lip eggs um this is probably I think I mentioned it in the NPR episode, but Mm -hmm. when I first got them, I thought, oh, I'm going to try something different. (laughs) (laughs) And um, after reading, because I, I, the carpet python book, when you guys did the, um, put the, the temperature um, recorder in the python clutches and you Mm -hmm. saw how the eggs just went up and down, they weren't like at a steady temp and they were reaching temperatures of, in the into the 90s at at a few points and um Mm -hmm. so i thought well i'm gonna do a varied um temperature where at night i was gonna let the temperature drop down like a couple degrees and then back up i was like i think i was doing 87 at night 80 
nine during the day because, mm-hmm. um, because well, what happened was I asked one person and they told me, oh, incubated them at 87. Then someone else told me incubate them at 89. So yeah. I thought, oh, I'm just going to combine the two. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I told Ryan Young and he's like, why, do, why would you do that? Don't do that. And um, he was absolutely right because um, I was getting so much condensation in the yeah. egg mm-hmm. box. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it was creating a problem. But I just, yeah. I just, um, I just thought, well, if that, if it happens when the mother incubates, like, I, because it wasn't in the wild, so we can't really say for sure that it happens if that's what would have happened in the wild situation. Mm-hmm. But I just thought it was cool, and I just thought I would try it, and then, but I'm not, do, I'm not trying that this time. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> yeah. trying to stay at a steady eighty-eight. Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, kind of part of the, the, uh, difficulty of providing a, a very thermal regimen is you need much larger enclosures and you need, you know, maybe much larger incubation boxes or, or something because, you know, in the wild, they have that almost unlimited area where they can go and, and, and they have unlimited, you know, temperatures that they can seek they can hit 150 if they want in in the sun or or go into the shade and get down in the 70s or go deep into a crevice and get down in the 60s or or, you know lower so um they they have those options and and to try to replicate that in captivity is very difficult and so i think a lot of times you know like and you know we we've kind of come from the mindset of the maybe the bar check method of having, you know, a million racks and all these little tubs everywhere. And, and with that kind of a setup, you have to have a pretty stable, you don't have much variation, right? You're setting everything on a thermostat. You don't have, you know, lights coming on and off. You don't have much of a swing in your temperatures because your whole room is probably heated up by those, uh, you know, all the heat tape or heat cable that you've got in all those racks. And so, you know, you're just shooting for as, as stable, as you can get and so yeah they have the proportional thermostats to keep everything at a certain you know level and so i think as we've tried you know hopefully kind of come out of that a little bit where we're trying to give larger enclosures and give more choices and things like that i i i kind of like that but but again it's very difficult to do that in a in a box you know (laughs) Because, you know, we talk about arboreal enclosures and I've never seen an enclosure that's, you know, more than 10 feet tall, you know, that that wasn't in a zoo uh, in somebody's house. You know, I actually I did see one in in a guy in Australia's house. He had like his whole basement. There was a tree coming up all the the length of the basement. It went into his coffee table in like his living room or something. And so you could look down through the glass of the coffee table and see down into like at the top of this tree. It was pretty cool. Like I know what you're talking reptiles. about. Yeah, yeah. Dave Kaufman uh, yep. made a video about his place. That's right. Yeah, it was yeah. it was pretty cool. He was pretty ingenious wow. with his what little. What was that guy's name? Something ju- jungle. Uh... Ca- it's like camo, camo, yeah, camo, yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was there in 2000. 
10 <laughs> um, visiting is it, there. Is it yeah. a zoo? Like, do you have to pay a fee? No, it's his house. It's his house. Like, yeah. yeah I, oh it's God. a zoo, but it's his house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he usually takes people into his house or not, but I was with a, like a mutual friend. And so I, I got to go into the house and see all that stuff. But he does have kind of a building out back. So he may do like tours or birthday parties or things like that out back. But for the most part, you know. So, Aside from that, you know, when people say I have an arboreal enclosure, they usually mean it's like three foot tall and two feet wide. And, you know, it's like I I have never seen a tree that, you know, that would fit into that enclosure. The box is a little taller than it is wider. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I I always thought that would be so. And I think uh, I'm I'm looking at uh, some of the videos that. Ari and uh, Ryu are, are putting up about their, their the new Reptilandia in Texas. I'm really excited to check that out. And they have those Me really, too. you know, tall enclosures with giant trees in them and stuff. So that's going to be pretty yeah. sweet. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'm curious to the, see how the they do in there. Yeah, all of those enclosures, the um, Bolin's Python yeah. enclosure. <laughs> I was like, wow, right. this is probably if I you know going to see those enclosures. Are those exhibits? It's probably the closest I'd ever get to actual Papua. So, <laughs> yeah, a lot safer <laughs> like, too. To yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd get, I'd yeah. get, make it in and out. <laughs> yeah, but I, I always thought that would be really fun to have like a, a you know a two story enclosure where you had like a, a spiral staircase that went around like a tree, and you had a bunch of you know green tree pythons in there, and you could kind of follow them and see what they see where they laid their eggs or whatever. But even that's limited to, you know, one or two trees. You know, you don't have a, a forest for them or, you know. And, you know, reading their natural history uh, studies, that they they talk about how they move, you know, 50 feet, you know, from to a to set up in an ambush position. You know, they, they go up and down the tree every day and night. So unless they catch something, yeah. then they kind of sit up and digest. But, yeah. And then his last crazy. five like five or six years of me keeping um snakes i've um i've started to think like that snakes as species are like really um varied and um they're really Mm -hmm. good at um changing when they need to and adapting but mm-hmm. it seems like as individuals, they're not good at it at all. Um, when you hear about um, like snakes being relocated not very far from yeah. where they were and just suffering and dying because they don't know those special like like um, uh, like uh, Rick Shine was talking about in his book how the water pythons he would all you could go to a certain clump of grass and know that mm-hmm. a certain snake would be under that grass at a certain time of day because that was yeah. that snake's clump of grass and he said uh-huh. that even even after the area had flooded and all the scent trails had been wiped away the next year after it had dried he could find that snake in that same clump of grass Wow. Because that was the yeah. niche. It was the its own personalized niche that that snake knew. So when you think about the life history of a snake, it hatches out, and it's say it's a green tree python, and there's a, t- a couple different types. There's the brave ones that eat, or there's the ones that just tuck their head and hide. And so mm-hmm. 
I always think that those brave ones are probably the ones that are have like a 50-50 chance because um, either they're going to catch the food right away and start growing or something's going to catch it right away. Yeah. And then the yeah. ones that hide, it seems like they just like want to find a, hi- a hiding spot. And then if they get lucky, something will happen to walk by. So maybe yeah. it depends on if that year the skinks just had a bumper crop and there was just skinks yeah. everywhere, those little chicken babies, maybe you would have a better chance. <laughs> yeah. Or, or picking pretty... the right right place. Like, um, mm-hmm. again, in the Shine book, he was talking about the the snakes that pick those perfect rocks, you know, the broad-headed snakes, and then the geckos would tend to come under those rocks. And when they're a little cooler, the snakes have been kind of facultatively thermoregulating and moving their bodies up and down to kind of retain heat. So they were alert and ready for a kind of a cold, dumb gecko to wander into their rock, you know, crevice or whatever. So um, picking the right hiding spot could be very effective as well or setting up the right uh, ambush site uh, for, for a baby green tree or something could be the difference between life or death you know yeah yeah it's, it's kind of like um when they talk about the rhythm of the room that's what it is mm-hmm. the the rhythm of the room is that snake's little clump of grass or its favorite um ambush or its favorite water hole where it always finds really fat rats to eat because mm-hmm. the rats go to that water hole or you know it's that's the rhythm of that snake's life i think i think the other the other the other part Mm -hmm. is is that humans who relocate snakes aren't making good decisions for where that snake needs to go and they relocate it to you know a subprime area where the that you know the 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 conditions are such that the snake just can't find what it needs and it doesn't do well you know well and and there's a reason that that carpets do really well in the human disturbed areas because there's lots of rodents and there's lots of roofs you know with warm temperatures to to hide out in and and pretty undisturbed with rodents crawling through every once in a while well and 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 i would say that carpets are more of a generalist species Yep. rather yeah. than you know and so 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 it's it's there's again you know it's nuanced because they're oh yeah you know, you're yeah. talking about very you know a difference in a very specialized species versus a very generalized species yeah. and you get definitely get like some of the 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 snakes that um uh that mark o'shea was talking about in his book who are just like like frog eaters or like just yeah. like very specialized you yeah. know versus you move them you know, and away yeah, from the, where the it's like their prey is and they're done yeah the, yeah the the broadheaded snakes if if a tree grew up and shaded the rock they wouldn't go in that rock anymore it had to have access to sun yeah. at the right time and they showed that by cutting away some of the limbs and letting the sun back in they could bring the snakes back to those sites and and you know they, that became a used um habitat for them they made up fake uh rock yeah. sites so they could wasn't that cool? They, yeah, yeah I, they were actually able to make fake rocks, and, was, uh-huh. and it worked. <laughs> yeah, and they had like a little seal that they put so it would retain the moisture to the to the appropriate level and things. So pretty cool stuff. So you know, we we uh, there's a lot we don't know about uh, what these snakes are doing, but you know, the things we do know kind of point to I guess both our sides. You know, they they uh, they do they do need a varied temperature but they also need to have have a specific temperature to do different jobs and so yeah yeah 
Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard when you know. I think it's hard when any animal has to. I don't think people do very well in a chaotic society, yeah. right? Where where they can't. They're like, oh, the economy sucks and gas is crazy, and I don't know how to make decisions right yeah. now, and this is stressing me out. Mm-hmm. In much in the same way, I think when environmental factors go real crazy, animals have a hard time. Like, okay, where am I at? What's going on? Like, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know it makes sense. Like you move a snake in a room, you know, like like all your all your carpets took uh, took the year off after you moved, Justin. Like yeah, probably yeah. in direct response to like whoa whoa whoa, what's happening here? You yeah. know, so this yeah. is I mean it I makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Eight years or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other I, I was, uh, any other burning I, topics? Yeah, I, I think that um, maybe. Um, this is not really it's more of a question than a um than a point or whatever Uh (laughs) is um so as as we're trying to breed these snakes and you have um sensitive snakes like the um tracy i tracy a um and we're trying to make it so that they're easier to keep in captivity Right, like we don't want to breed snakes and then have the babies end up dying because they're still so sensitive. Um, I was wondering if, um, when we're keeping them, maybe um, if we're exposing them to a little bit of a higher or lower temps, kind of making them a little uncomfortable. Um, as they're growing when we're keeping them before we sell them or give them away. Um, I wonder if that would make them a little stronger so that when they do go to their new home, they'll be ready for more. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm, am I making sense? Yeah. Like, no, no, I, um, I, I get what you're saying. I think, uh, like I, I've thought about that a bit cause it seems like when you get, uh, well, I, I think baby, you know, juvenile animals are a little more adaptable anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, usually if you get an adult into your collection they don't acclimate as well as you know say a baby you know you get a baby and it eats the next day you know and it's fine but sometimes it messes up an adult and and they they are stressed out and freaked out because they got moved you know and they they kind of know wait this is bad but when a baby's born it's it's looking to kind of move and find its own place and get out and find a food source and things like that. Everything's kind of new. So it's not, maybe it doesn't have those expectations of no, my keeper comes in every Wednesday and gives me a rat, you know, like they, they're a little more adaptable because they don't necessarily have a, a rhythm or they don't know what to expect. Maybe. I don't know. That's kind of what came to my mind with that question. Yeah. That's a good question what, though. I like what, that. Uh, yeah. What made me think about it is that the, um, is it the gold golden spoon or the well when uh yeah. shine was talking about um how the water pythons are so adaptive that when when there's a bumper crop for the rats the snakes can go from mm-hmm. being just a smaller snake that stores fat and lays small clutches to being a humongous snake that just grows you know, to gigantuan mm-hmm. sizes and lays huge clutches and the babies come yeah. out trying to eat big food right away. And I was wondering if you expose the babies to certain types of temperatures, if you'd get something, if they would be adaptable that way too. 
Mm. But I mean, yeah, I don't know, and it's hard to test mm-hmm. because. Yeah, that know. seemed to correlate with uh, um, good good feeding. So I think mm-hmm. you know if you're, I don't I don't know if you can overfeed a juvenile python if you're keeping it at proper temperatures. They're designed to kind of grow quickly. At least the Australian pythons, I don't mm-hmm. you know that I have experience with. You can feed them a couple times a week and and they'll grow fast and long. You know, but um, once they hit adulthood, then they can start getting obese. But like if they if they've got the proper temperatures to digest, you can feed them up pretty pretty easily and i think that corresponds with what shine was observing you know that during when, when pythons hatched during bumper crop years they did a lot better overall you know over their lifespan they laid more eggs they lived longer all those kind of they grew larger all those things i, I think and so think, it just uh depends on what what year you're lucky enough to be born in you know or, or unlucky enough to be born in so and, and, and I, I so think they that kind was of, his, it, they, the temperature sorry. and the bumper crops coincide with each other is what you're saying, or or at least Maybe. moisture. Yeah, like like is if the conditions are good for the rodents and they're breeding very well, then that's going to be better for the snakes. I I don't know that it. It seemed like maybe temperature plays a role in that, but like also extreme temperatures can be very bad for snakes, you know, and it can be much too warm and drought. And yeah, and he he was talking about some of his early studies were were thwarted because it was a bad year and the snakes just weren't doing anything and they were dying off and things. And he's like, oh man, no wonder nobody studies snakes. This is hard. You know, Australian snakes have it very rough. Like it's really hard to make it in the Australian outback mm-hmm. and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's uh, tricky out there for, for a wild snake. And I think maybe that's part of it. You know, they're used to that kind of being, I don't know, paranoid or, or stressed out. You know? So they, they, they're like ready, like, Hey, anything changes and I could be dead. So I need yeah. to make sure that I head for cover if there's some kind of, and if I don't, if I don't recognize the area, I'm just probably going to die out because I don't have those, the benefit of knowing where to go during extreme heat or cool or whatever, you know, I think I that, know. I think that by nature they have to have, plasticity you know like the the the, to me in in my head and i don't you know i mean i'm not uh uh, you know anybody to say this but uh it doesn't make sense that the golden spoon hypothesis could only apply um you know you either you either are a feast or a famine snake you know you get you get put into one club and that's the club you're in for the rest of your life it 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 it, it, it should be able to go both directions right hmm. it would have to yeah potentially i mean to. i mean uh, yeah it, it that well, seems to in make the sense, hypo- in that he said that what happened to the snakes that grew really large is they really struggled during the time of drought and mm-hmm. um famine and they weren't able to recover because mm-hmm. it's you kind of like how it, size. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of what goes on with the imbricata on that one island where the females struggle to get to that bigger size because there's no median yeah. size food. There's just the really small food and then the really large food. And yeah. if they don't eat if a they mouse can't or a wallaby, that, <laughs> yeah, they can't make it over that hump. They could, you know, not make it. But yeah. but in the it, but in the but 
but in the the ones that you know feasted during the famine they created more offspring uh, which increased the likelihood that more of them would make it than the ones who maybe did a little bit better but produced way less offspring so to me it's all just reproductive strategy and action right like um, yeah, you know, totally. and, and and so looked at looked at over you know um, o- over the long haul, um, probably is generally about a wash. Um, uh, you know, yeah, and, well, and, yeah, both ha- both serve their purposes, and I think that's kind of yeah. what you were driving at there, uh, with Lisa, with the uh, you know idea that exposing the babies to a diverse you know temperature or or uh, you know different different experiences. Uh, makes them maybe stronger for to to withstand you know hard times down the road if you know their keeper loses interest or something and they kind of have meager meals for a little while and then all of a sudden they're feeding them up again you know those kind of things where um, that they can handle those changes a little better than say a pampered snake that just had a a steady state temperature and all the food it wanted. And then all of a sudden times are lean and they die off because they can't handle those, you know, rough times. Maybe that kind of goes along with what you were thinking. Well, I was thinking more, it's probably a stupid question anyways, because snakes need to, you can't just make a snake's, be able to handle cold like a python stay cold for a really long time without getting sure. sick yeah. but mm-hmm. kind limits, of what i was yeah. thinking is because in the um reproductive husbandry um the blue bible um uh he was ross was talking about how when his white lips hatched out they were prone to um respiratory infections so he was recommending keeping them really warm and so I kind of kept mine pretty warm Um, and so sometimes I worry that if they're really used to always having really nice warm temperatures when I send them out to someone else maybe that would be setting them up for failure but I mean I haven't heard of any of them having any problems so but it was just an idea you know, thinking about the temperatures and also that, that um, reading that book was just inspiring different thoughts. Yeah. And, um, no, I, I think it's a very valid question, really uh, important one to think of because, you know, if we can be improving the offspring that we're sending out, that, you know, that's a, I think, that's and a good I think, thing, right? I do think a lot of people pin respiratory infections to temperatures. And I'm not mm-hmm. so sure that that's a very correct. I think that temperatures can exacerbate uh, respiratory infections, but the root cause of respiratory infections is, you know, the pathogen, pathogenic, <laughs> or one hundred percent, or yeah, uh, you know, obstruction, or yeah, you know, some kind yeah. of so it's, disease it's, state. I, in the yeah, area. I mean, I, yeah. I just think like if if that was the case, if it was th- if it was a, solely a thermal issue, then you know, snakes would be kicking off left and right out in <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, dur- during the cold season, out in nature, and to be quite frank, like I, I you know, I, I keep my snakes at a steady temperature. I keep snakes at varied temperatures, and I don't really see RIs in my in my collection. So, does that mean that, like, I just I, I think that there's something else going on there. And when I kept 
I used to keep more snakes when I was much newer of a keeper, and I and there for a while I did see RIs, and then I kept back on all the snakes that I keep, and now I keep them in very you know all different types of, and, and I don't see RIs anymore. So mm-hmm. to me, it's just like I think RIs have uh, other underlying causes that that get exacerbated by temperature. Yeah, yeah, that's my two cents. Sorry. All right. Well, any final thoughts or you got uh, got anything else or you want to wrap it up? What do you think? I mean, I I feel I feel good if you guys do. If we missed, I I don't think we missed anything. We talked about (laughs) eggs, babies, adults. Yeah, I, I think it was a great discussion, and I and you know I appreciate your preparedness and, and the good topics you brought. That was a really fun fun discussion. So, thanks well, so I'm for no Casey on. Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Casey's fun. Yeah, he's he does a good job as well. But yeah, you, you that was great. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks guys. Yeah. It's been yeah. really nice talking to you guys. Awesome. I, I yeah. look up to both of you. Oh, oh well, I look up to you I, as well. Yeah, I was so. going to say, I, I am not to be looked up to. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I haven't bred black, white lips, so you're, yeah, you're, no shit. One, you're one up on me there. So. Yeah. Oh, they're easy. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Tell that to Owen. <laughs> uh, he's yeah. right around the corner. He's almost there. <laughs> yeah. I, I hear he wasn't too happy about how much we talk about him on the podcast. <laughs> he was he, he was a little upset about that. But yeah, he says he's he's always sometimes listening. So we better better be uh, we'll pay homage to Owen one of these days. But I did notice um, <laughs> last night when they were talking about the um, the Timors, his, mm-hmm. his little name badge said Mac and Wookie on it. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> that's pretty common these days. Yeah. He's he's taking that on. Yeah, that's all right. We know you're out, out there Mac and spying. <laughs> <laughs> all right well um thanks thanks for coming on and and uh we'll thank uh the the pod father uh for letting us uh record this fun stuff and and appreciate the the uh, npr network uh any good shows you guys have listened to lately um i thought i mean obviously they're uh i haven't even been on my own show for yeah. crying out loud <laughs> you're not listening to any, no. any shows <laughs> yeah they had a little crossover with uh lucas over on uh t- on snakes and stogies with oh i, I did see Phil, so. i did catch a yeah. little bit of lucas yeah lucas started little that. baby face on there to it, yeah he did it did a good job from what i've heard so far dang so. lucas and his red ackies are are <laughs> Dude, I'm just like, I, know, oh, yeah. I don't need Ackies. I do need Ackies. I'm, I'm excited for Lucas's research. He said he was doing um, thermal research uh, oh, cool. for the um, black, black-headed black pythons. Yeah. He's analyzing the um, data that was collected by, I, I can't remember. He he said her name, but I can't remember her name. But mm-hmm. there's he's going to figure some stuff out. Yeah, I'm going to make Bruton. Daddy Loafman yeah. proud. <laughs> Dr. Bruton, yeah. The, she's oh, yeah. she's amazing. Like she's done some really cool research. I I was I had the I was lucky enough to be on a call with her with Lucas and her and and Nick uh and I think Zach was on there as well. Yeah, it was really cool to to talk. calling it for us. <laughs> <laughs> the fat lady has sung. <laughs> yeah. Your dog was pretty well behaved. Just a little whining, but what's yeah, uh, a, what's your dog's whiner. name? His name's Cal. All like right. he's a little yeah, he's a little cowboy. 
<laughs> what kind of dog is he? He's a standard schnauzer. Okay. So cool. they're known for being yappy and yeah. talk, talkative. Uh, yep. I, I have a little uh, schnauzer mutt upstairs. I'm not sure. He's like schnauzer, some kind of schnauzer or terrier, some kind of terrier. I don't know. He's he's a cross of a couple different dogs, but he's a yappy little thing. But Yeah. Fun stuff. That's their job. That's their job. Yep, that's, that's right. right. They got to let us that's know right. that somebody's at the door that we're talking to. You know, yelling, yelling out the window. My <laughs> yard. My yard. My yard. My yard. Who are you talking yeah. to, mom? Yeah. Who's on the computer? <laughs> uh, exactly. All right. Well, um, check out uh, NPR and and all their stuff, all their socials. Um, great stuff. Great content. And we will. Uh, Catch you again next week for another episode of Reptile Fight Club. Facultative Fight Club is out. Fight Club.